If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Father, it's so great to be able to gather together here today to worship you. We thank you, Father, so much for all the wonderful ways that you bless our lives. Father, as we gather here, even though we are grateful for what you do for us daily, Father, we know that all this stems from the fact that we have been adopted into your family because of what Christ has done. And because of that, Father, we're able to recognize what you've done for us. And we have the privilege and the duty to come and gather together to worship you. To worship you, Father, out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of gratitude. Father, because it is right. Father, because we seek to be strengthened by our time together with you. And also, Father, we come now to ask that you would continue to bless us as we open your word. As always, we pray, Father, that your word would be that which will strengthen us, that it will encourage us. That, Father, you would continue to infuse us with knowledge, those things that you desire us to know and to understand. That, Father, our lives may continuously be transformed by your Spirit. That we may become more like Christ in every way. Again, Father, we know that as these things happen, the joy is ours. The reward is ours. And for that, we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning now in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, it reads, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and those things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now again, as we think back over the verses we've covered in the past several weeks, again, Paul mentioned in verse 24 that to those who are called, those who are called to Christ, those who are called to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And again, he states that because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So basically, again, as we kind of wrap that up over the last several weeks, we we ended with the fact that it was not on man's terms and it's never on man's initiative, but on God's terms and God's initiatives that man found what he needed, which is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Man needed his life to be put back together. Man needs uh, to have peace within himself. Man needs to have peace with others. Man needs to have peace with God. But man on his own, man in his own wisdom, is not going to seek that out. There are individuals who say that they are looking for God, but remember, they're not looking for the God of the Bible. They are looking for God, yes, a, a God of their imagination. God as not only they imagine him to be, God as they want him to be. And so, again, if God was to leave us to ourselves, we, we would remain in darkness, groping for these imaginary gods that are going to bring us the things that we desire. 
Here what he's making clear is that God then, because of his great love and mercy, has taken the initiative and he has brought us to himself. He has opened our eyes so that, again, we would be able to find those things that we so desperately needed. So here Paul, again, urged the Corinthians, as we looked at the passage we read today, he wants them to survey their own congregation. In other words, he's now, as he makes these statements, he's saying, now I want you just to stop for a moment and think about who is with you here in the church. Who are your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Because he spent all this time talking about how God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. That means the individual who proclaims and, and thinks that he's smart apart from God. The ones who are denying God and yet believe that they have all these gifts and abilities. So as we think about salvation and those who've come to know Christ, Paul is saying just kind of look around. Think about who's there with you. From a human viewpoint... Wisdom, influence, and high breeding were in short supply. There weren't a whole lot of academics there in their group. There were not a whole lot of what we might call self-made individuals that were there in the group. There there was not the individuals that the world was clamoring to come and either to listen to or to meet that were there in that group. It was just basically a lot of common individuals. If God had chosen on the basis or on the the criteria that, that man does... He would have passed them by. But when God called, he turned the world standard upside down. And usually God chose the ordinary rather than the outstanding. And the reason why he did that was that no one would be able to boast before God. No one would be able to do that. Christ alone personified the wisdom from God. And in him, that is Christ, the Corinthians experienced righteousness, justification, holiness, sanctification, redemption, and glorification. In the wisdom of God, the plan of salvation was accomplished by a crucified Christ, hidden from the wise and learned, but revealed to simple believers. And if you just kind of look around today and just listen to individuals on TV and those on the radio and various you know, interviews that you find on podcasts, you'll find a lot of individuals who for all of their supposed intelligence, keep tripping over the message of Christ. They they keep imagining that believers are just, that we're just kind of dumb, that we believe dumb things, that we're immature, that we don't really know what's going on, that for us, our Christianity, as we mentioned last week, is just a crutch, that we are emotionally weak, and that we're just kind of clutching to whatever it is we can clutch to because of our fear. And not really recognizing that really it's the opposite that's taking place. They just refuse to acknowledge that. And so as these self-proclaimed individuals, self-proclaimed, you know, the, the elite, so to speak, the celebrity, I guess, is the easier word to use. Uh, we think of the, the celebrity can be a lot of different types of individuals, but they're usually uh, filled with themselves. Not every single one of them, but a majority of them. And when it comes to the message of the cross, they just they keep tripping over it. I've, I've read in many different books where individuals have stated that this idea that God sacrificed his son for our salvation is at best an adolescent idea. That it comes from the age of barbarians. That only a bloodthirsty, immature, weak people would think somehow that that is a wise plan. It only means they don't really understand it. They don't see the wisdom of God that we see in it. And it's not that we see something that isn't there. No, we see what is there, but they are, again, they are blinded. They are blinded by their own sin. They are blinded by the gods of this age. So we can ask ourselves, why would God choose us? Why would God choose you? Why would God choose me for salvation? 
By human standards, there is really nothing about us that qualifies us for a relationship with God. Most of us belong to the group which we probably would identify as the general public, uh, maybe even weak or in some cases despised. My graduating class in high school was 985 students. I was ranked 274. Just nothing special. Nothing special stood out at all. I was just a regular guy, uh, to say the least. That's just, I wasn't recruited. when I, I loved playing football, but there, was, there were no scholarships from D1 schools. There were no phone calls from D1 schools. There weren't any even form letters from D1 schools. There were no D2 schools knocking down my doors, you know, wanting to uh, recruit me to play for their school. I ended up going to a D3 school. You kind of have to walk on and kind of try to earn grants and scholarships back then anyway uh, when I played. It was just, you know, a regular guy who wanted to play football and just kind of get by in life. Most of us are that way. I don't, I don't see the press standing outside of your doors wanting your opinion on whatever's taking place in the world. You know, there's, we're just a bunch of regular people. We're part of that general population. And yet because of God's grace... God didn't, God didn't send out individuals to survey you and I to see who and which one of us was worthy to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. God in his grace met us where we were, and he himself opened our eyes. The only reason anything has changed is because God's wisdom erases human wisdom. In fact, this fact alone shows the current problem of the clickishness is senseless. In other words, when, when, you, when you read through Corinthians, Paul, one of the things that Paul gets on them is, you know, they kind of had these little cliques. And we've mentioned before that, you know, there are certain individuals in church that we hang out with, and that's not wrong for us to do that. We just need to make sure that we're never excluding anyone out of our group. We want to make sure that, that we're never kind of putting out that vibe that others aren't welcome. That's, it's very important for us to make sure that we are aware of that. Maybe even open our group to others purposely. So again, it's, it's okay that you and I get along with others maybe better than others in the sense that we have more things involved but, uh, or more things in common. But we want to make sure that, that we're not um, forming a clique, so to speak. And so we just kind of have to keep our eyes open. Well, when, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, you know, that was one of their problems. They were kind of forming groups. And in these groups, uh, you know, they were kind of claiming, you know, superiority spiritually and that type of thing. So when you think, though, back to salvation... And that basically everyone is just part of the general population. Forming cliques to say that you are somehow unique or the best just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There was nothing special about you before. There's nothing special about you now in the sense of comparing us to other individuals. We want to make sure that that's clear. In fact, uh, Baptists usually try to make this clear that even when it comes to the terms that we often use, and it's hard to get away from them, you know, the idea of the clergy and the laity, uh, you know, we don't really like that. But we want to make sure, though, that even if we use those terms, we want to make sure that people understand that those who are part of the clergy aren't better than those who are part of the laity. So we, we, we may use that to identify roles that we fill, but it never means that someone is better than someone else. When it comes to leadership in the church, it's not because someone is better than other people. Oh, yeah, there are certain things that qualify individuals to be involved in leadership. Absolutely. There are things that might disqualify individuals from being in leadership. There's no doubt about that. But it's not about someone being better than other individuals. 
And so Paul, again, is kind of laying, relaying this foundation because as he begins to move on in the letter, begins to kind of get on them for a lot of the sinful practices that they are involved in or allowing in the church, he wants them to look at those things in comparison to what he's laying down here and how that just doesn't make any sense. They're not thinking about who they are in Christ. He's not, they're not thinking about how they came to Christ, who they were before they came to Christ, and what they are now that they are Christians. He wants them to continue to put those things back together and think about them. So few of us, if any of us, have anything to boast about, that's for sure. For the Corinthians and for us, if wisdom and power could be gained through self-promotion, we would not be among those that were chosen. The status that you and I enjoy now as being children of God because, is because it's a gift from God. It is because God has chosen us. God has chosen us to shame those in the world that consider themselves to be powerful and wise. In fact, uh, it is not, again, uncommon to hear individuals. I've heard these kind of conversations. Uh, I've, I've watched them with individuals, again, who are uh, kind of they're very prideful because of their accomplishments academically and maybe financially. Uh, and there's a, a sense of pride that when it comes to salvation, that, that requires a humbleness that they, they just can't lower themselves to. They can't see themselves. They, they see that as being a humiliating kind of thing to bow before God and to receive the gift that God has for them. This idea that whatever they possess or whatever they've worked hard for, really they have nothing to bring to the table hurts their pride. And that's, and that's one of the things that the gospel does, is the gospel shatters our pride. We need to realize, we need to remind ourselves, and maybe even more so if we've been saved for a long time, because as God continues to change us, sometimes pride can still kind of rear its ugly head, because we then begin to think we're better than others, because now we are aware that we are sinning less than others, at least it should be. We're not sinning in the same degree as others, and we might begin to think that somehow we're superior. That, we're, that maybe we're not academically superior, maybe we're not financially superior, but we're morally superior. We may be morally better behaved, but, I, but remember that what we possess, our desire to, to live in obedience to what God has said is because of the work of the Spirit of God in our life. It's not because someday we just kind of woke up and we said on our own, apart from the grace of God, we were going to do better and thus we accomplished that. It's never that at all. And we need to remember that and keep that in mind. Paul is pointing out there um, to these Corinthian believers that they are examples of, God, of how God's wisdom works and that their, uh, their presence, their status now is contrary to the very wisdom that they now seem eager to follow. And that's kind of what he's leading towards. They want to move in the direction of the world. He says, eh, this doesn't make any sense. God exercised his wisdom in saving you. That's the wisdom that we should be following. And that's not the wisdom that you're following. You're kind of moving back towards the world in the way that you're thinking. Look again at verse 30. He says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So since they are the church, the believers are in Christ. And so God's wisdom is the only one to consider. Out of all the wisdom that's out there, out of all the wisdom that's offered, the only one to consider is the wisdom that comes from Christ himself. Contrary to the wisdom that cultivated the status, honor-driven culture of Corinth, God redefines wisdom as righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We don't often think of those terms in the sense of wisdom, but that's how we need to think about it. 
That is the wisdom of God. These are gifts from God leading to gratitude. Again, they are not achievements or exercise virtues that are giving us bragging rights. Who of us here is going to brag about our righteousness, which is the righteousness we receive from God himself? The only one you can brag about is Christ. Who, which one of us here is going to brag about our holiness? We wouldn't even dare go in that direction. But whatever holiness we have is because of the work of God in us, and we're grateful for that. At least we should be. Who of us is going to brag about our redemption? Did we buy ourselves out of the slavery of sin? I think not. Did we work ourselves out of the slavery of sin? I don't think so. Again, it was the work of God. And so it very naturally leads to a life of gratitude and thankfulness. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, in one sense, when you read this verse, we have the three tenses of salvation given here. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. That is righteousness. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. We shall be saved from the very presence of sin. And that is redemption. And every believer has all these blessings in Jesus Christ. That is the only way I know I possess these things is because of Christ. And that's because I possess Christ. And I possess Christ because Christ possesses me. And Christ possesses me because I love him. But I love him because he loved me first. Okay, that's how it worked. He loved me first, and because of that, I loved him. It's almost kind of like that little game you play when you're in middle school. Do you like so-and-so, or do they like me? Yes? Oh, then I like them. Right? It just shows our, our weakness and our, <laughs> that we have and our vulnerability. Worldly wisdom, remember, is usually oriented towards giving advice how to do well or how to gain prominence in a certain culture. All of our self-help books that you can buy, the books are all kind of geared toward our American culture and how you can do well and how you can gain prominence. God's wisdom, on the other hand, focuses on his purposes, and that often runs contrary to the common pursuits of worldly wisdom. So when you want to, you know, I, I think the world is kind of learning this, but, but again, they still want to take God out of it. There are several uh, books, business books, books trying to help individuals to become either successful salesmen or to be successful CEOs, that kind of thing. And one of the things that they've been, you know, kind of really harping on for a long time now, uh, the best ones, is they, they talk about the character of the individual. You know, that if you, really, that if you want to be successful in these areas, it's not just smarts with money or whatever. It's also this the idea of character. Well, you know where they get that from. They get that from the Bible. They just got to take God out of it. That's what they do. But they, but they recognize that. But God's purposes for us is not just to be kind of honorable in front of individuals and treat others right. That's a part of it. It begins with being totally committed to him and being committed to holiness. You don't see a commitment to holiness in any book on how to achieve uh, financial greatness or how to achieve great celebrity status. Pursuing holiness has to do all about with God. The world hates that. They will mock that and they will make fun of that, uh, to say the least. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Sometimes what happens when we read verses like that, we can misunderstand 
what is going on here because we somehow think that these things that God is talking about is somehow totally divorced from regular living. Like this is just church stuff. Like this is just spiritual stuff, you know, that you do in the privacy of your home or that you do, you know, in the four walls that we call the sanctuary. What we need to recognize as we look at these things is that this has everything to do with every aspect of your life. All right, we need, we need to get away from this idea that the world keeps kind of forcing down our throat that you have your regular life and you have your spiritual life, or you have your regular life and you have your religious life. It goes together like this, period. It must. In fact, for the Christian, if our spiritual life or if our religious life does not interject or intertwine itself in our regular life like this, then you're probably not a Christian. Now, you can be that when it comes to many pagan religions. You know, you can do your religious thing and then do the other thing, and you know, there's no contradiction. But for the Christian, there's always a contradiction if those two things don't match up. And so once again, when we get back to look at this, we need to spend some time meditating on the Word of God. Remember, when you meditate on the Word of God, you, as you think it through, it's not just thinking about what the, what the words mean, though that's important. And I want to be careful how I say this, because I, I will say we need to think about what it means, for, means to us, but I don't mean in the way that we interpret it, like somehow it means one thing to you and another thing to someone else. It means what it means. But what I mean is the idea is, is how it applies to us. How, how do I absorb what's being written here? What, what difference does this make in my life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? So then I need to think of that in terms of let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands God, that he knows God. And that what is it that he understands about God? That he is God. That's what it's saying in the beginning, that he understands and knows that I am the Lord. Back to Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you understand that, you then have the foundational stone you need to build that life that you really desire to build, that where you are going to be successful in really maybe every sense of the word. The teachings and the wisdom of the culture has a greater impact on Christian behavior than does God's wisdom. And that's why we need to always think about those things that continually bombard us from the world. We need, we need to be aware. So let me share with you some things. Number one. When it comes to thinking as Christians, thinking, uh, Christian thinking must be rooted in the cross. Our thinking as believers must be rooted in the cross. We must never lose sight of the cross of Jesus Christ. And again, that's not just wearing some kind of piece of jewelry that's a cross. That's not making sure that your Bible has a cross on the cover. The idea is, is that is always what, how I identify not only myself, but I am uh, using it as a lens to understand and evaluate all of life. And, it, and it's what the cross represents. It's all that the cross is, which is the redemption of Christ that, that, that's, that, that comments on everything about you as an individual and on our society. As much as we like self-help books, and we do need to, and there, you know, there is also Christian self-help books. There really are. And we need to help believers apply their Christian faith to daily living. We must be constantly aware of the disparity between secular wisdom and Christian wisdom. There's an older book that's been used for a long time uh, for, for individuals in business, and that is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it's a pretty good book. It's a secular book. The problem is that sometimes people take a secular book and they sprinkle in a few Bible verses and then say, now it's Christian. Okay, don't do that. That's just horrible. Right, it's not a sin to read a secular book. It's not a sin. And it's not a sin to say that a secular book is actually pretty good. It's got some good, good points to it. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's not pretend that somehow that's Christian. 
Because a Christian book is one that's always going to be drawing all of its principles from the Word of God. But not just trying to extrapolate their principles and making them some kind, somehow sound secular. Because they're all going to be related to who we are in Christ. Right? In other words, when it comes to just the simple thing of, of treating other people better and maybe being a better listener before you start you know, talking to them. That's a great principle. But remember, we need to do that as Christians because we love God and we love them, not just so we can sign a contract with them, not just so we can be well-liked by them. It's because we love God and we love them. That's what needs to be different. That's, that's what Christian character is. So we're not just kind of going through the motions here. The idea is that I become those things that God says he wants me to become. These aren't just principles for us to kind of memorize and then check off and repeat them every day so we can somehow be successful in business and then get paid money so we can tell other people how we did that. The problem with the Corinthians and the problem with us is that often our thinking is no more than a Christianized version of secular wisdom. We have fallen, and I guess I would blame that mostly on Christian bookstores and the Christian publishing arms that are out there. They have done us a great disservice. They, there's a lot of good books out there, but they have done us a great disservice by compromising the principles of the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God by Christianizing secular things. And we just have to stop doing that. And we have to get back to the Word of God and what it says, asking God to evaluate where we are as people. All right? We want to be successful in business. It's not a sin. It's not a sin for you to want to be, whether it's politics or finances or academics or whatever. You want to be successful in all those things. Absolutely. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to make sure that we are doing so as a Christian. That means as one who is committed to Christ and everything that you do. That will make success in those areas much more difficult. It will also cause you probably to have to carry a heavy burden. There, will, there are going to be people who are not going to like you. And there'll be times you're going to have a hard time with that because you're going to know yourself that you've done nothing wrong. You haven't hurt them or harmed them in any way. Ah, but you love Christ. And what did Jesus say? Don't be surprised if the world hates you. And then he tells you why. It's because they hated him first. And why would they hate Christ? What did he do against them? What did he say against them? What wars did he start? None. What governments did he overthrow? None. We just see with the religious Pharisees that when Jesus healed people, they got ticked off. Because he did it on the wrong day. Or the wrong way or whatever it happened to be. It's just nuts. And the world continues in the same way. The ground rules for our thinking too often has not changed. We've just sprinkled in a few Bible verses. Secondly, when it comes to wisdom and foolishness, and it is true, no one likes to be embarrassed or considered a fool. It is exceedingly difficult to, cause wise, to call wise what others call foolish and foolish what others call wise. In our culture, there's this notion that providing for the family is a really good thing. Sounds good on the surface, except in our culture, providing for the family is purely a financial thing. It may sound wise, but that idea proves devastating to God's purposes. Because it places material wealth as greater in significance to spiritual wealth. So when someone says, oh yeah, I, I believe in providing for my family. Ask them the question, what do you mean when you say that you want to and you desire and you enjoy providing for your family? And they may say, well you know, I bring that paycheck home and da 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 da. Say, that's great, but that's not all that that means. What are you doing for, you? and this is important for Christians, maybe even more important for us. What are you doing for your children spiritually? 
Remember, if you're called by God to provide for your children financially, you are called by God to provide for them spiritually, period. And there are many who have fed their children physical food and they are starving their children spiritually. They've sinned against God. They've sinned against their children. They've sinned against themselves. They've sinned against future generations by doing that. How have we slipped into that arena where that has been accepted by Christians? That somehow we are not really keen, we're not committed to providing for our children's spiritual health. I don't, know, I don't know when that happened. I don't know how it's happened. But we have to begin to hate that. We must detest it. Not detest those who are failing. We want to help them. We want to encourage them. They may, they may feel overwhelmed. It's not overwhelming, but they feel overwhelmed. We have to help them. We have to encourage them. Sometimes I, there's things I want to say, which I don't say it the way I'm thinking of it, because that would be bad. You know, I'm thinking, you lazy, stinking bum. Okay, that would not be helpful. I don't think that would help a dad want to spend time with his children. The thought sometimes crosses my mind. But you know what? Maybe they didn't have an example. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they just get caught up in the things of the world, which can happen very easily. Remember, it can happen to all of us. That's why we cannot be judgmental when we're looking at other individuals and we can maybe clearly see how they are failing, all the while we don't see how we're failing. Now, that, that happens. We need to be loving, kind, and gracious, and firm. And we need to seek to help and encourage and come alongside the individual. Now, I've been coaching football for a long time. Most of the kids that I coach, when I first start coaching them, have no clue what they're doing. I mean, it, in fact, you've probably heard the jokes. If you've ever played football, guys, you know this is true. The coach will do a simple drill and tell you to do certain things to your right and certain things to your left, and inevitably a bunch of guys go the wrong way. And so we have to teach them right from left again. However, the idea is, is that when it comes to that, I don't stand there and say, you idiots, you bunch of morons. I can't believe you're not even to play football. Just get off my field. Uh, that, that's kind of already a given. They don't know what they're doing. That's why I'm supposed to coach them up. And so I want to come alongside them and teach them and help them and correct them and encourage them. And sometimes I have to get on them. But we do all those things to help bring them from point A to point B to C, D to E so they can be successful and be on the field and play and have a great time. And that's what we want to do with each other as believers. So then again, we want to make sure that we're not allowing anyone to think somehow that material wealth is greater in significance than spiritual wealth. The time that's required to teach children godly wisdom is often neglected. Let me just kind of read you an example. Timothy was raised by some, uh, a godly uh, mother and godly grandmother. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read this from the Amplified, so if you're following along, there'll be a lot of words that are not in your text. Uh, but this is to amplify what's being said. He says, I am calling up memories of your sincere and unqualified faith. The leaning of your entire personality on God in Christ in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. A faith that first lived permanently in the heart of your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I am fully persuaded dwells in you also. That's a godly heritage that's been passed down. What you and I want to pass down to our children is that they learn so that their entire personality depends upon God. They lean on God in absolute trust in God, and absolute confidence in the power of God, and absolute confidence in the wisdom of God, and absolute confidence in the goodness of God. That's what we want to pass down to our children. The consequence, though, of what's been going on in our world is instead of a sense of rootedness, and identity 
Christian children, or maybe we could say children from Christian families, often feel rootless and in search of meaning and identity. That's a real big deal over the past 30 years. People have talked a lot about individuals searching for identity, um, looking for a sense of meaning in life, wanting to know what they belong to. What we need to do as believing parents is we need to pass on the, the idea, not just that our children belong to our family, not just a sense that they are rooted in our own traditions and cultures and our families, but that that should be rooted in Christ. Because, you see, if they don't have that, when they, when they do begin to interact with the world, whether you homeschool or whatever it happens to do, when, when they begin to interact with the world on their own, they're going to be, in some senses, easily persuaded to move away, to move off home base, so to speak. And they're going to go in the wrong direction. Some may go in the wrong direction for a little while and maybe come back, but some will continue until it reaps devastating results. Why is there that emptiness? Why is there that sense inside of them where they don't really have a sense of purpose and meaning? They, they feel, again, like they're, they're not, they don't really have their own identity. It's because they've been, they've been infiltrated by the world big time. And mom and dad aren't there to help. Well, see, what we have to realize, it's not a sin for you to let, allow your children to, to watch movies and watch TV, but you have to understand what's coming through. You have to understand that this is what the world is teaching. They're teaching this all the time. The world is, is, is teaching them that your parents, first of all, don't have a right to give you your sense of identity, that you have to decide that for yourself. And it just goes on from there, and it comes in all kinds of ways. And so we have to combat that by making sure they're rooted in the Word of God and then having those good open discussions with them. That's important. Because they don't, they end up like all the other kids that are out there who don't have that sense of identity. And they get pulled off in all various kinds of ways for many different kinds of reasons. It's not just the whole idea that they don't know who they are sexually. They don't know if they're male or female. It comes in all kinds of ways. But that's a large part of it. And it's a shame when it happens. And again, it can happen in Christian families. But if we're seeking to do everything correctly the way the Lord says, it should be extremely, extremely rare. Because I believe the word of God never returns void. And so we, that's why we, we pray and ask God to give us wisdom. Because you and I aren't going to be smart enough to catch all that. But we, but we can teach what we know. And what we should know is what the word of God says. And if we know that, we're going to be okay. Again, God's wisdom calls for a new community where the ground rules for behavior in all spheres of life have changed. And again, that should be rooted in the Bible. Thirdly, and I do this one quickly because we do have this pretty much in our society all over the place, and that is we trust in self-effort. Self-effort leads to pride. It gives an opportunity for one to brag. As believers, we are not immune to this. Uh, that can happen a great deal. Knowing more of the Bible than others can uh, cause us to become prideful. Being more spiritually gifted than others can lead us to be prideful. Being a member maybe of a certain church can lead us to be prideful. Following a Christian leader or teacher can cause us to be prideful. Faithfully serving in a church ministry and, and maybe getting upset because others aren't doing as much as you, that's definitely a pride coming out. All those things give rise to pride. To pride. And we need to hate pride. But remember, when, you, when it comes to hating pride, it's easy to hate the pride you see in others, but you've got to hate the pride in yourself first. And you've got to hate the pride in yourself second. And you have to hate the pride in yourself third. And then you will probably act correctly in disliking the pride in others. 
But this must be, uh, and that's what Paul is getting at here. This is the, he's laying the foundation. So when he jumps down their throat, so to speak, for the foolishness they're involved in, it comes back to understanding who you are in Christ and what that means. Again, remember what the word says. Remember, when it comes to the calling of God to salvation, not many wise were called according to the flesh. Not many mighty are called. Not many noble are called. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And if we make that our goal and our purpose, we'll be living in the wisdom of God. You'll be living in the will of God. And you will be experiencing a great sense of satisfaction and depth of happiness that we call joy in this life. And we want that to be what others see and what others are curious about. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you as always for your grace in our life. Father, you've been good to us in so many ways. Father, when we think about it, even though it is kind of humbling, most of us, maybe all of us here, Father, we, we've always been a part of the general population. We're just not, we're not those unique, standout individuals. Oh, we may be unique in certain ways and stand out in smaller circles, but for the most part, Father, when it comes to at least qualifying to be one who was chosen by you to have a relationship with you, none of us were able to achieve that. It's all because of your grace. Father, that, that's a wonderful thing. Because that means, Lord, that all of us, all of us have a chance. Our children have a chance. It, it's not based on the way the world looks at things. It's, it's based on your goodness and your kindness. And Father, we'll bank on that every day. We pray, Father, you help us to be like you. To have that, that proper mindset and to be grateful in every way. Pray, Lord, you would help us to hate the pride that's within us. Help us, Father, to be loving and kind and gracious to others. Yes, to live out the principles of Scripture, but to do so because we love you and because we love our fellow man. Father, we ask as always that, that you would help us to examine our hearts, and perhaps this morning again there are those who realize that their lives have just been empty and, and all of their, their trust has been placed in themselves. And they find themselves in a, in a position where they are just unsatisfied with so much. Well, we thank you that they are unsatisfied. We pray, oh Lord, that you would help them to see that the answer is found in Christ. And they would repent and come to Christ. Father, we pray that for those of us who are believers, that, Lord, you would enable us also, give us that desire to repent of these things that we've spoken of this morning. And once again, to embrace Christ anew and to cling to Christ in every way. That, Father, we may have all those things that we truly desire. Thank you, Father, for not giving up on us. Thank you, Lord, for giving to us so many chances in life. Thank you for the joy that we even possess now. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.